The scripture tonight will be from Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Luke 1, 32. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We appreciate the reading of scripture tonight and also the beautiful songs that have been sung. We are very grateful for the opportunity to lift our voices in rhythmic melody to Jehovah God. We're going to be looking tonight at several passages of Scripture, and we're going to be contemplating the theme, Why I Believe in Jesus. And so we're going to be doing that in just a moment. We want to take this opportunity to express appreciation to each and every person here tonight, particularly those of you who are visiting. As always, we encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're very thankful that you have honored us with your presence today. We have a number of our own members who are away, those who are traveling for spring break, and we trust that they will arrive home safely. I suspect school will be starting back, is it tomorrow? So anyway, good news and bad news, I guess depending on how you look at it. But we're very grateful to have Billy and Connie with us, working with us on a regular basis, and also Jared. Glad to have him with us and working with our young people. We're very grateful for the many opportunities for service in this congregation and the great talents that uh, so, many, so many of you have. Tonight we want to think about the theme, why I believe in Jesus. If someone were to ask you, why do you believe in Jesus of Nazareth? What would you say? There are a lot of people in our world today that for any number of reasons, will tell you they do not believe in the one called Jesus. Well, you and I, we put our faith and trust in someone who is not a phantom figure. We're not talking about some fictitious character, but rather we're talking about someone who, historically speaking, lived here upon this earth. As a matter of fact, there is an abundance of evidence for the historical Jesus. And then we think about what the Bible has to say concerning Jesus Christ. I do think it's incumbent on us to know what we believe and why we believe it. So if we're asked the question, why do you believe in Jesus? We ought to be able to give some rock-solid reasons why we believe in Jesus of Nazareth. There are really two things I want to share with you in our study tonight as we think about this theme, why I believe in Jesus. The first reason why I would submit unto you we ought to believe in Jesus is because of his massive influence. Think for a moment about the tremendous influence that Jesus Christ has exerted upon the human family. Now, Jesus lived here on planet Earth almost 2,000 years ago. And yet his influence is widespread. Just a moment ago, the passage that was read, Luke 1, verse 32. The Bible says, he shall be great. Well, when we talk about Jesus Christ, we need to underscore the greatness of the Son of God. There have been any number of individuals that have graced planet Earth and they have indeed left their mark upon the human family. 
But I would suggest unto you that there has never been a character, past, present, or even future, that will make the impact upon this earth that Jesus Christ did. That's quite a statement. To think that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has welded such great influence upon our world and continues to exert influence. And I believe as long as the world stands, will exert further influence. So what about the reputation of the Son of God? What about His massive influence? Let me just cite for you some, some of the things that I think help to underscore the massive influence of Jesus. And particularly, the things that... that that all of us, the things that we're going to talk about, all of us are very familiar with. And so we're not talking about something that is secretive. We're not talking about something that uh, is unknown to any of us. But number one, think about his influence on time. We use the letters A.D. in the year of our Lord. Did you know that every document that is signed and dated is a testament or a witness to Jesus Christ. In other words, every time you and I write a check to someone, one of the things that we do, we put the date on that check. Well, that is a testimony to the influence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The newspaper that you received this morning, if you open, if you open that newspaper up, on the front page, what do you have? The date and the year. And again, the year of our Lord. If you have a cell phone, look at your cell phone. What do you have there? A date. Again, testimony to the widespread influence of Jesus Christ. And bear in mind, Jesus lived upon this earth 2,000 years. And yet we... We think about his influence on time. And then also I would submit unto you, we think about his influence in the realm of government. There are three divine institutions that are spoken of in Scripture. The first being the home. And we, we can read about the home and how God instituted that back in Genesis chapter 2. The second divine institution would be the civil government. The third, of course, would be the church of Christ. The civil government exists for the purpose of protecting the human family. When Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he said, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers or to those authoritative figures. And the civil powers, they work on our behalf. But think for just a moment about, think about our, our country. Our country was founded by individuals who had a deep and abiding belief in Almighty God. And not just the God of heaven, but the Son of God. When we talk about our founding fathers and their belief in the Lord, their belief in the Bible, their belief in the Son of God, I would submit unto you that many of our government buildings bear inscriptions of Scripture. Why do you think that's the case? Because these men and these women believed in Jehovah God. They believed in the Son of God. And His influence was ultimately directly connected to the founding of this nation. Now there are people today that are trying to tell us that 
that this nation has been founded by any number of individuals and that what we need to do is recognize that there are various roots and cultures existent in our nation. And so what we need to do is pay homage to Buddhism, to Islam, and to other Eastern religions. Well, let me tell you what. Buddhism, Islam, or any other Eastern religion for that matter, had no impact on the founding of our country. But the Lord did. And those who would try to eradicate the influence of Almighty God in this country need to wake up. They need to realize that this, this country was founded on biblical principles. And so, we think about his massive influence in the realm of government. And then also, what about his influence in the sphere of literature? Think of all of the books that have been penned. We, we talk about books of history, science books, science textbooks, books on astronomy, books on government, books on political figures. Over and over again, we could cite countless volumes of books that have been written. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 12, of the writing of books, there is no end. Think of all of the books that have been cataloged. Just think about our country. The Library of Congress catalogs the books, many of the books that we have in our libraries today. Well, there have been a lot of books that have been written. And those books have, have been written on any number of various subjects. But I would encourage you to do, do a search sometime on the internet and look at the massive volumes of books that have been written about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Go to the library. Go to a theological library. And you begin to look at all of the books that have been written about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you will literally be overwhelmed. I think about all the books that I have in 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 my library, my small library. And those books, many of those books, center around the Son of God. And so, I think that when you, when you look at secular society and all the books that have been penned, the bottom line is this, they all pale in comparison to the, to the numerous books that have been written about the Son of God. And then, fourthly, what about his influence on music? Think of all of the songs in our, in our hymn book that, that remind us of Jesus Christ. Brother Billy, just a moment ago, led us in some very beautiful songs that, that focused our minds on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, don't you think that, that his life and the fact that we have all of these songs that have been written, many of these songs that have been recorded, that these songs are a testament to the great influence that the Son of God has welded down through time. Again, think about what is said in Luke one thirty-two: He shall be great. What other figure do you know of that represents the volumes of books, the volumes of music that Jesus, the Son of God, does? I don't know of any. And so... His massive influence in the realm of music. Another, I think, indicator of his tremendous influence in this world has to do with 
education. Look at, look at many of our educational institutions across this great land. Did you know that a lot of our educational universities, our, our institutions of higher learning, were founded by individuals who had a deep belief in Jehovah God? Not only did they have belief in God, but they also had respect for Jesus, the Son of God. Two institutions, Harvard and Yale. Now granted, they have moved from the ideals behind which they were, they, they were founded. But the point is simply this. Because of the influence of Jesus, these two institutions, as well as many, many others, have been founded because of, of the influence of Jesus. Look at, look at our Christian schools and Christian universities. And granted, there are many of our schools and universities that, that they too have moved away from the ideals of Restoration Christianity, from the, the, the founding fathers' ideals and dreams. But nonetheless, it was because of their belief in God, their belief in the Son of God, that these institutions were founded. Another, I think, indicator of the massive influence of Jesus has to do with his, his influence on the treatment of humanity. Look at what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. We call it the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have men do unto you. Well, one of the problems, as you well know, in the first century was slavery. And we think about the Romans and their, their influence, their, their godless paganism. Well, there were, there were an abundance of slaves in the first century. And slavery has been a part of, of this country. But when you read Scripture, what, what you find is God through His Word and the message of the cross, the message, message of Christ, encouraging men and women to realize the sanctity of human life and the dignity of human life and the importance of treating others as, as they want to be treated. The idea is that, that the Bible, when you look at the influence of the Bible, it has encouraged men and women to treat people on a higher plane. And the Bible, wherever the Bible has gone, it has exalted the plane of, of the human family. When you see scripture being read and you see individuals coming to a faith in Jesus Christ, what do you have? You have people that begin to treat one another with respect and dignity and honor. Well, again, that, that goes back to the influence of Jesus, the Son of God. An eighth, I think, indicator of the influence of Jesus has to do with the mark that he's left on the home. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked a very important question about divorce. The scribes and the Pharisees came to him and said, Have you, they, they came to him and asked him the question, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any or for every cause? Jesus responded by saying, Have you not read that he which made them in the, in the beginning made them male and female? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too, they twain, shall become one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two or twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. 
Wherever scripture has gone, wherever the ideals of the home have gone, and the basis for that would be the teaching of scripture, the teaching of Christ, you have homes that are happy. You have homes that remain intact. I said just a moment ago that our country was founded by individuals who had a high belief in Scripture. They had, a high, they had a high belief, or rather they had a tremendous sense of faith and belief in Jehovah God and, and in the Son of God. Well, we live in a day and time in which people have moved away from those ideals, and we've seen the consequences, the massive consequences that have resulted therein. The same thing is true with, with regard to the home. When men and women open the pages of the Bible and they understand the permanency of the home and the commitment that is to undergird, undergird the marital relationship, when they have an appreciation for the words of Christ, then homes remain intact and those homes flourish and prosper. They are the kind of home that God, they're the kind of homes that God is well pleased with. And then we also think about the, the guidance, the instruction, the love, and the discipline that is to be administered into the home. Well, where did all this come from? The Bible. Over and over again, the Bible teaches us the importance of rearing our children in the Lord, of, of administering discipline. I think about what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 4. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Those of us who are parents, we're not to be so overbearing on our children that, that they rebel or become defiant. But rather we are to nurture them, we are to, to shower them with love and affection. We are to discipline and correct them, but ultimately we are also to put them in mind of the will and the ways of Almighty God. When I think about the influence that Jesus welds on the home today, I'm reminded of what Paul taught in Titus chapter 2 when he instructed the aged women, the more mature women, to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Look at our society today. We talk about the influence of Jesus and his massive influence in our world. Is it not the case that one of the, one of the reasons the home today is in utter chaos is because we've forgotten the ideals of Scripture? We've ignored the pleas of our Lord. And bear in mind when you read the 27 books of the New Testament, you're reading the word of, of the Lord, the will of Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. So whatever he says, whatever sphere it may apply to, we are to honor and we are to revere. And so I believe in Jesus because of his massive influence. And listen, we're just... We, we've just touched the hem of the garment. You could cite any number of reasons as to why you believe in Jesus because of his influence. We, we happen to live in, in a geographical area in the United States that has a great affinity for Elvis Presley. And I will freely grant it's amazing to me that Elvis Presley has been dead some 30 years and people migrate from all over the world to pay homage to him and to think about his life. And I would in no way minimize the, the fame, the statue, the stature that he has attained in this world. And, and the idea is simply this. If you go to Graceland or if you, if you read about Elvis Presley, you know that he made his mark 
on this country and on the world. But listen, in comparison to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Elvis Presley is a nothing, a nothing, a blip on the radar screen. And you can go back and look at other individuals that have left their mark on civilization. Great people, people that we read about, that we, we, that, that we think about, that we study, that we write about. But none, none have exacted the measure of influence that Jesus did. Secondly, I believe in Jesus because of the message of inspiration. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about revelation. Is it not somewhat staggering or amazing to think that this book that we call the Bible comprises 66 individual books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. It covers three dispensations of time, the patriarchal period, the Mosaic dispensation, and the Christian age. We today live in the Christian age. We are under the law of Christ, Galatians 6 at verse 2. It is called the perfect law of liberty, James chapter 1 at verse 25. Did you know that when you begin to read each and every book in the Old and in the New Testament, one of the things you're, you're going to come face to face with is the fact that Jesus is the central figure. Go back and read Genesis the book of Genesis begins by ushering in life. It begins with life. It ends with death. But mankind is created. Mankind is placed in a utopian environment. God said that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, because the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Now, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the first couple, they transgressed the law of God. And thus, death, physical and spiritual death, made its entrance into the world. Well, in Genesis 3.15, God set forth the promised seed. The promised seed, you and I know him or know it as the Christ. Genesis 3.15 is a messianic prophecy. It points to the coming of Christ. And from that, that time forward, from that day forward, you have an unfolding of God's great and grand scheme of redemption. Every passage pointing to the coming of Christ in the 39 books of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God called on a man by the name of Abraham to leave his homeland, to leave his family, and to, to migrate to a land that God would show him. In verse 3, God said, And you shall all the families or nations of the earth be blessed. God raised up the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people. It would be through the loins, the lineage of Abraham, that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would emerge. And then Abraham and Sarah would give birth to a child, a child of promise. Isaac. And so we, we talk about this seed line and, and the writer, Moses, of the book of Genesis, 
traces these historical characters or historical figures that will have a part in the bringing forth of the Messiah, the Redeemer. So you have Christ coming through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons and it would be through the tribe of Judah that Christ would come. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the writer there speaks of the family of David. Did you know that Christ came through the family of David? Just as the prophet said in the long ago. Well, we're talking about Christ being the focal point of prophecy. Over and over again, the Old Testament writers revealing bit by bit, piece by piece, information relative to the coming of the Son of God. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, you have a passage that reveals unto the human family the fact that Christ would be born of a virgin. He said, the Lord himself will give you a Give you a sign, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew documents the fact that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, just as Isaiah the prophet had indicated centuries earlier. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Isaiah said, speaking of the Christ to come, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 depicts the suffering servant. Zechariah speaks of that day in which a fountain will be opened for sin and uncleanness. And those are just but a few of the passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that point to the coming of the Christ. And then we come to the New Testament. The New Testament is simply an affirmation that the Christ has come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John affirm the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. Listen to the words of John in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14, John said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, what, what John was saying there was that God incarnate, Christ, this second member of the Godhead, had come to earth. In Hebrews chapter 10, it was Jesus who said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. All of those Old Testament prophecies that pointed to his coming, Jesus came to fulfill. And so in Luke chapter 24, at verse 44, Jesus would say, following his death, burial, and resurrection, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written about me in the law of Moses. And in the prophets and in the Psalms, Jesus here goes back and he identifies those first five books of the Old Testament, penned by the hand of Moses, inspired of Almighty God. And he said, what Moses wrote about me, it has come to be fulfilled. What the prophets, all of those great prophets, men like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Hosea, and others, they pointed to my coming. Well, I have come. And then the Psalms 
Read sometimes Psalm 22. One of the most prolific psalms about the Son of God or about His, His death on the cross. Just one passage of Scripture. There are others. But again, when you look at Revelation, we talk about why do I believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? What should we tell our friends and neighbors? When somebody asks us, why do we believe in Christ? Well, we believe in Christ not just because of His massive influence, but because of the message of inspiration. Because this book is literally God-breathed. You tell me how mortal man, without inspiration of God, could compile a book of this magnitude with one central figure over a period of some 1,500 years, focusing on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, how in the world could anyone, unaided by inspiration, compile a book like this? The answer is, it couldn't happen in a million years. That's why Paul said, all Scripture, inspired of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I like what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter said, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What Peter was saying there is simply this. The, scripture, the Scriptures, as you and I know it, did not originate in, in the minds of men and women. In other words, nobody thought this up. Was it something that, that man, of his own volition, of his own will, of his own thinking, came up with? There's not a person on earth that could come up with something like this. And to think that this book was written over a period of some 1,500 years by 40 different writers. How do you explain that? I know that there are people in our world today that want to wave off the Christ and they want to wave off this idea of a belief in God. Well, I'll tell you what. They've got a lot more proving to do than I do because when you, begin to put, when you begin to put it to the acid test, we talk about the historical Jesus and the revelation of Jesus Christ as, as provided us by this book that we call the Bible. Just read Matthew chapter 1. Read Luke chapter 3. And note the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He was not a phantom figure. He was not some fictitious character. We're talking about a real being. Now who could, who could, who could come up with something like that? Go back and check it. Read it, examine it, investigate it. The Bible invites us to investigate it. So I believe in Jesus because of the message of inspiration, because of revelation. And I would submit unto you that when we begin to, to look at Revelation, we see that Christ is the focal point of prophecy. And not only that, but He is the focal point of preaching. Isn't it somewhat interesting that in the Old Testament you can read, for example, of Isaiah. Isaiah points to the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Christ, who would prepare the way of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40. Malachi, the last writing prophet, points to the coming of the work of John the Baptist. Daniel, when he foretold of the coming of the kingdom of God, he said, in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. 
Now that's significant. Because you see, when John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, Matthew tells us he, he went out into the wilderness of Judea and began preaching what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John the Baptist pointed to the coming of the kingdom of heaven, he was also giving a prelude to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because it would be through Jesus that all flesh would see salvation, according to the words of Luke. And so John the Baptist began preaching the coming of the Christ, the coming of the kingdom. And then Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, what did he do? He preached repentance for the kingdom of heaven. As he said, is at hand, Matthew 4, verse 17. Look at Jesus preaching and teaching. But here's something of interest. Following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, what did the early disciples, the apostles, and other members of the church what did they do? What did they engage in? They engaged in the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, what do you have? You have the hub of the Bible. And on Pentecost Day, we have the apostle Peter standing forth. And you can just imagine the, the numerous people assembled in, in the city of Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. Peter lifted up his voice and he said, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. The focal point of his preaching, Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among them by signs and wonders and miracles, which God did by him in the midst of those people. Peter said, You have taken and by lawless hands you've crucified and slain him. Turn over and, turn over and look at any number of chapters in the book of Acts. We'll just move very quickly to Acts chapter 8. We read about those early disciples that were scattered abroad because of a persecution that swept the early church. And the Bible says that those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. When they preached the word, what were they preaching? They were preaching Christ and Him crucified. In Acts 8 verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to the people. Over and over again, in Acts chapter 8, what do we have? We have the, the eunuch from Ethiopia. He had been to Jerusalem to worship Almighty God. He was on his way home. He was reading from Isaiah the prophet. He didn't understand what he was reading. Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I accept some man guide me? And the Bible says that Philip got up into that chariot and he sat down with the eunuch. And the Bible says, beginning of that same scripture, he preached unto him whom? Jesus. Christ, the focal point of preaching for 2,000 years. The preaching of the cross, the preaching of the Christ, that says something about the influence of Jesus and why we ought to believe in Him. And then finally, I would suggest that Christ is the focal point of practice. Let me just cite for you very quickly three things. Number one, did you know that baptism, every person who is baptized into Jesus Christ, that that is a testament or a monument to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ based on Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. You just think about that. Every time somebody is baptized into Christ, that says something about our belief in the Son of God, the fact that He was put to death on Calvary's cross, shed his blood on our behalf, placed in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, 
broke the bonds of death three days later, resurrected from the grave. A second thing that we ought to think about, the Lord's Supper. One of the things that sets us apart from the religious world at large is every first day of the week, what do we do? We take communion, don't we? Every time you break bread, every Sunday, whether it be Sunday morning or Sunday night, every time you break bread, you are bringing to mind the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that that body that was given was given for us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, As often as you eat this bread, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Every time you partake of the bread, you're reminding yourself that Jesus Christ bore your sins and my sins in his body on Calvary's tree, 1 Peter chapter 2. But then also we partake of the fruit of the vine. The cup reminds us of the shed blood of the Son of God. The cup of the New Testament, which, which was shed for the remission of our sins. Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come again. Now, I mentioned a moment ago Elvis Presley. If the world were to stand 2,000 years from now, I don't know if people will know anything about Elvis Presley, but I know one thing, people will know about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because this book that we call the Bible is not going anywhere. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, heaven and earth may pass away, shall pass away, but my word will not pass away. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the word of our God stands forever. As long as we have this book, we'll have people that know about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as long as we have New Testament Christians, that is, individuals who believe in New Testament Christianity, doing things according to what is stipulated in the blood-sealed covenant of the Son of God, you'll have men and women every first day of the week partaking of the fruit of the vine and remembering the death of Jesus. That says something. And then finally, what about the first day of the week? Under the old covenant, the Jews, they were to, to what? They were to observe the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, along with the law, was given to Israel based on Deuteronomy chapter 5. You and I, we were not given the law. We observed the law of Christ, the Lord's day. In Revelation chapter 1 at verse 10, John said, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? It's the first day of the week, Sunday. Every first day of the week reminds us of the influence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the one called Jesus, the song that we sang a moment ago. I may not have been there in the flesh. I didn't see what Peter and James and John and Matthew and the other apostles and disciples saw in the first century during the earthly ministry of Christ. But I believe in Jesus. And I hope you do. And to those who are in our world today who are skeptical, who are unbelieving, I would just encourage 
read, study, investigate. Every person owes it to himself or herself to read and to study and to weigh the evidence. If you weigh the evidence, you'll come away with a deep and abiding belief in the Lord. Paul said, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul was a man of great faith. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a New Testament Christian. What would you need to do? Well, we cited Acts chapter 2 a moment ago. On Pentecost Day, Peter told those people assembled on Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. When they did that, every sin washed away. They were added to the body of Christ, Acts 2, verse 38 and verse 47. The exhortation to anyone who would do that is to be faithful until death. The promise being the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, would you come home? Would you renounce tonight the ways of the world? Come back home. Why not do as the prodigal did? Come to your senses. Come home. Acknowledge you've sinned. Ask God to forgive you. We'll pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1.9. Would you come as we stand and sing?